0: Welcome to Living Downstream, the environmental justice podcast from Northern California Public Media. This time, living with lead. America has a lead problem. It used to be in the air before we started using unleaded gasoline. It's still in old paint, old drinking water pipes. Sometimes it's even in the ground near old industrial facilities. And lead contamination has been in the news a lot lately. It wasn't long ago that the mayor of New York City announced the city's housing authority will test every public housing apartment that might have lead in it. The Environmental Protection Agency, which under the Trump administration has largely focused on rolling back Obama-era regulations, is prioritizing lead cleanup. And residents in Flint, Michigan, are still fighting for clean, lead-free water. But in neighboring Indiana, in the city of East Chicago, it's lead in the soil that's the problem. Back in July of 2016, a letter from the city's mayor informed residents of a public housing complex. That they'd have to move out because the complex was unsafe. That evacuation order threw a wrench in the EPA's cleanup plan, a plan that will now cost upwards of $80 million. For some, that letter was the first they'd ever heard of lead contamination in the neighborhood. It sparked a frantic response from residents and public officials that's still playing out today. Producers Annie Ropeek and Nick Jansen have been following this story for more than two years. And they bring it to us, developed from their team's award-winning multimedia presentation for Indiana Public Broadcasting. Annie is now with New Hampshire Public Radio, reporting on energy and environment issues. And Nick is a first-year student at the University of Maine School of Law.
1: Keisha Daniels and her sons live in a Superfund site. That's a toxic waste site the Environmental Protection Agency is in charge of cleaning up because it poses a risk to human health. Keisha grew up in this neighborhood, the Calumet neighborhood. And until recently, she lived in its public housing complex. It's called, it was called, West Calumet.
2: It feels funny standing out here. (laughs) Locked out.
3: (laughs) Now the complex is locked up behind a chain-link fence topped with barbed wire. It's mostly made up of tiny one- and two-story houses that have brown brick and white trim, They're all empty now, but the dead grass in the front yards is still dotted with EPA signs warning children who no longer live there not to play in the soil.
2: I didn't realize until I moved out that I don't have the basic things like dishes. (laughs) You know, you had to start all over again because I love everything. I love it. I love it. I walked away with just my furniture and the stuff that we had packed from when EPA did the cleaning. Everything else is in that house. Every, um... Uh, alarm, a uh, clock, uh, every radio, everything was left there. I left it there because I was scared to take it.
3: There's a reason Keisha was scared to take her things, a reason she moved out, a reason West Calumet is abandoned and fenced off. In 2016, the EPA told East Chicago's mayor they found lead and arsenic contamination over a hundred times the legal limit in the soil at the West Calumet housing complex. The mayor ordered the complex evacuated. All 300 plus families, who were mostly people of color, very low income, lots of kids, they found out through letters in their mailboxes.
1: You know, moving isn't easy under the best of circumstances, and these were the worst of circumstances. And Keisha says public officials didn't do enough to account for that.
2: All of us are like a crab in the barrel. we all trying to get out, and that made the process a lot worse. I just wish they had a better plan. They should have had a plan B and a plan C and a plan D. And they just had plan A, get out, that's it. That's all.
3: East Chicago is often called an environmental justice community. That means it's a place where government response needs to go above and beyond the normal process to account for systemic inequality.
1: But for the most part, the cleanup in East Chicago has stuck to protocol. It means the community, from Keisha to schoolchildren and countless other residents, have had to take justice into their own hands. Hi, how are you? Good. Good, good, so good to see you again, Mr. Cole. Call. Sorry oh, right. we're late. That's okay, that's fine. Yeah, you? Uh, you guys can have, hang out We here went
3: to East Chicago Urban Enterprise Academy before we visited Keisha back in November 2017. That's more than a year after this city's big lead problem first became common knowledge. And that problem isn't just the lead pipes and paint you see in lots of American cities. Lead is in the ground here. It came from old factories and was dumped for years into soil that thousands of people now live on.
1: Keisha's son, Xavier, goes to this school. Even though it's been a year since he and his classmates first started finding out lead was a really big issue in their town, many of them still don't know how bad it is for them in their homes. They've had trouble getting answers.
3: So today, they're talking about test results from a project they did with the NAACP in a local university. Jalen Williams is one of the first to share his experience.
2: Something that happened was that I wasn't really too surprised with is that, my, is that the state told my grandma that she did not have lead in her yard, but everybody else around my grandma's house has lead. So then come to figure out, my grandma does have lead in her dirt. I wasn't too surprised. I mean, I'm always usually going off and ranting about, oh, this and that, the government's wrong. So
3: There's been a huge federal and state government presence here for the past year. They've done things they've never done in any other Superfund site, and they've helped a lot of people.
1: But it hasn't always been easy, and there's suspicion between locals and those public officials. It actually kind of runs both ways. Officials often bristle at comments made by residents or shake their heads when residents go off topic at a public meeting. And many residents aren't convinced the officials have their best interests at heart. One thing that's been really clear in East Chicago since all this started, just following protocol isn't enough for a community as disadvantaged as this. Some might feel a little offended, right? Maybe upset at the fact that you told me one thing, but when I did some research and I, I got, received more information, uh, now I feel like I may have been tricked. I may have been lied to.
3: Mr. Mitchell Cole, the science teacher, is the one who has to figure out how to explain all this to a bunch of middle schoolers, on top of explaining all the sciencey parts. And the way EPA tests soil for lead and how it talks about those samples is different than how you talk about them in a middle school science class. It can be technical and complicated and hard for non-scientists to understand, let alone 13-year-olds.
2: I was kind of surprised because...
3: This is Kershawn Walker. A few weeks before this class, he collected some dust from his home. Other students brought in water and soil samples, and they learned how to test the samples for lead. Some of Kershawn's dust samples came back positive.
2: Well, I wasn't at the same time because we live like five minutes away from the projects. So it was kind of surprising, but at the same time, it wasn't.
1: The projects Kershawn mentioned are where Acacia used to live, the West Calumet housing complex. It was built right on top of the Superfund's most contaminated ground in the 1970s.
3: If you could see the Superfund site on a map, you'd see a big rectangle toward the bottom of the city. And that rectangle would be divided into three sections. The part on the left is West Calumet housing complex. The other two parts are a residential neighborhood. About 2,000 people still live there.
1: But the housing complex is a huge part of this story. Abandoning it was a huge upheaval for a lot of these kids and their neighbors and friends. It's what put East Chicago on our radar as reporters in the first place in the summer of 2016. And it's how a lot of these residents found out about East Chicago's lead problem. It's not the only impact lead has had here, but it's a big reason Mr. Cole and his kids are talking about all this today.
3: And actually, uh, ironically, just the other day, I received some of your results, and I'll be sharing some of those with you all today. And I, we have one student here with a with the with a facial expression uh, surprising. So we'll share we'll share some of those even today with uh, with you uh, in a few minutes. Some kids like Kershaw already had their results. They got them when the NAACP unveiled this first of its kind program a few weeks before at this very school.
2: Good evening, everyone. Uh, I am Principal Eskew here at East Chicago Urban Enterprise Academy. And am thrilled
3: And having kids do lead testing and learn to communicate about it was designed to be empowering, but it left the school's principal, Veronica Eskew, also a lifelong East Chicagoan, feeling raw.
2: I don't want to get emotional about it, but some of our students, their results did come back positive today. And sitting there with your peers, comparing results, I'm sure some of them are wondering, okay, well now what? In that respect, it was heart stopping.
1: Okay, now what? What do we do next? As reporters, we spent more than a year in East Chicago, and that's the question all the residents kept coming back to. That's why Jacqueline Patterson of the NAACP says East Chicago needs all the help it can get. She directs the organization's national climate and environmental justice program.
2: We can continue to advocate for government to take more more um, responsibility. But in the meantime, it's our communities that are paying the price for the lack of government leadership and infrastructure around it. So we have to really, you know, seize the reins ourselves.
3: That's part of what makes East Chicago an environmental justice community, like we talked about earlier. Jacqueline defines what that is.
2: Mm-hmm. So we, I talk about the, the, the disproportionate impact of toxins in the air, toxins in the water, toxins in the soil on certain communities, more likely communities of color, more likely low-income communities. But it's also baked into our system in terms of whether it's because property values often determine where these things go and property values tend to be lower in those communities or other ways that it's a systemically supported practice and circumstance. And so that's what we define as environmental injustice.
1: East Chicago is full of examples of environmental injustice. It's the fact that West Calumet housing complex was built on a freshly torn down lead smelter in the first place. It's all the trouble the families had moving out of that complex, that they were forced to do so. It's that some of them, like Keisha Daniels, had no choice but to move within the Superfund site. It's
3: that during all this, in a completely unrelated situation, they found out their water is contaminated with lead, too. It's that they feel trapped by poverty and barriers that a normal amount of government response doesn't alleviate.
1: It's that they feel like no one is helping them figure out, okay, now what? I'm
3: gonna show you a few short videos and then we'll, we'll continue our conversation. Back in Mr. Cole's science class, the kids watched videos about how lead gets into homes and how it's tested. They talked about how their families have reacted to the discovery. Some said they want to move away. Others were angry. And then, while we were talking to Mr. Cole as his kids were going to their next period, one of the students, Antoine Brown, came up to us, anxious to hear if his samples had tested positive for lead.
1: Mr. Cole assured him he'd get his results by the end of the day. And Antoine described really bluntly how that made him feel.
3: Scared. Yeah. It's
2: not so much scared. it's like cautious, because if
1: I got, if I have
2: lead, then... Mm, they told
1: me I didn't have lead, but if I do have lead, then that means they didn't test it right. I told my mom we tested, she said if we got lead, we, she said she goes through the state. In the end, Antoine's results were complicated. The soil from his yard did have some lead in it, but it's an amount below, below what the EPA cleans up.
3: The agency has something called the remedial action level. That's how much lead a piece of land has to have in it before the agency will clean it up.
1: Antoine's yard had less than that amount, but it had more than zero. The Centers for Disease
3: Control and Prevention say no amount of lead is actually safe, particularly for children. Ingesting lead, whether it's in the tap water you drink or the soil in your playground or backyard that gets on your hands and then in your mouth, any of that can affect brain development. It makes it hard to think and remember things. But the reality is cleaning up all the lead, having zero lead everywhere, would be extremely expensive. So the government sets a quote-unquote acceptable level.
1: But did you notice how Antoine talked about his results? He said, I got lead. And technically he does, but it's very possible that when the EPA told him and his family that their results were under that acceptable level, the family understood it as our yard doesn't need to be cleaned up. We're okay. We don't have lead. Like we said, this stuff is complicated and it doesn't always get communicated clearly.
3: But misunderstandings like that can cause mistrust. That feeling like you always have to ask and question of being unsure or unsafe. And when we talk about fixing situations of environmental injustice, that mistrust is a big obstacle.
1: So we talked to Carlton Waterhouse about this. He's an environmental law professor and used to work on environmental justice for the EPA. He gave a sort of a standard definition of environmental justice similar to what Jacqueline Patterson said, but then he added something new.
4: But there's also like a a benefit definition, right? So when you think about environmental justice, you can also think about in terms of the people who bear the greatest risk and harms associated with pollution and yet have the least significant benefits that flow from that pollution.
1: That would be the money from the business that does the polluting, the better paying jobs, the tax benefits for wealthier parts of the city, the political clout. The people who get harmed the most by the pollution may benefit the least from it. I asked Carlton what it would mean to achieve justice in a place like East Chicago.
4: The presence of justice would be that people find themselves equally benefited and burdened from pollution equally participating in the decision-making about polluting facilities and pollution impacts, and then also equally finding themselves benefited and having access to green spaces and being free from the risk associated from contamination. That's how we would define what environmental justice would look like. The reason it's so hard, it's so infrequently cited as a definition is because it's so rare.
3: Carlton says there's a lot of things that could be happening in East Chicago that would create some justice, like job creation associated with the cleanup.
1: And the EPA has done that. Of the 3,000 or so Superfund residents, the agency trained 15 in environmental cleanup work. 10 went on to actually work for contractors doing the cleanup.
3: Carlton says there could also be a bigger effort to engage affected people. But a lot of folks have left town and no one is keeping in touch with them, despite their health and financial problems related to the contamination.
1: He says there could be better communication, that the EPA and other officials could be going above and beyond as they try to help people in East Chicago.
4: That's a process, and you have to be very intentional about that. And it can't be just like something you hope happens if you are a good person in doing your job. The level of training that people have on the issue of environmental justice tends to fit into the kind of diversity
0: training that we have,
4: right? So it's sort of like, you know... You know, you go to a one-day thing, maybe you go, maybe you don't go, you just figure be a good person and everything will be okay. And I think that kind of, again, reflects a lack of being informed, having that kind of more robust background, being well-trained.
1: One reason doing this work in East Chicago and Northwest Indiana might require that more robust background is because of its complex history. This is a post-industrial region where the demographics have changed a lot since all that industry came and went and left toxins in the ground.
3: Let's step back from the response for a second and look at how this community was treated before this happened, how it got into this situation in the first place. It dates back to the early 1900s. Northwest Indiana is a big manufacturing hub. There are big steel mills, railroads, factories, and there were a bunch of lead smelters, They made lead for use in oil, paint, batteries, the other stuff we don't make with lead anymore.
1: As more people of color moved in and got those factory jobs, population records show white people moving out. But over time, the factories closed down. The steel mill shrunk. By the 1970s, most of the lead smelters had shut down, leaving cheap land for the city to build a public housing project for the mostly black residents who remained.
3: That was West Calumet Housing Complex. And it was only about 15 years later in the 80s that records show the state found out the neighborhood soil was badly polluted. For years, a bunch of government agencies tried to figure out what to do about it. The EPA and the city were involved. The area kept almost becoming a Superfund, but not quite.
1: This is the essence of environmental justice. All this time, generations of people were living on land that was full of lead. Not just West Calumet Housing Complex, but the neighborhood around it. People moved in and out. They got married, had babies. Those babies grew up and got married and had babies. Some people got cancer really young and died, or grew up with chronic health issues. There were even public meetings about the lead issue. Some people knew a version of it, but they went about their lives because no one was telling them not to.
3: Finally, the housing complex and surrounding neighborhood got listed as a Superfund site
4: in 2009. That's ridiculous. I mean, literally, that's ridiculous. This should have happened decades beforehand. And so in light of that, I think the agency has a greater responsibility here to do more than just the minimum, to try to bring together resources from state agencies and other organizations to try to do something special here for this community and try to help these people to meet whatever their needs are that are related to the environment.
1: Now, the EPA has said time and again that it is doing something special in East Chicago. They say this situation is unprecedented, specifically an emergency Superfund cleanup within a public housing project. And they say the level of response and cooperation and communication has been unprecedented too.
3: But if you ask the people who live there, people like Keisha Daniels, this has been a hellacious experience. When she goes back to try to see her old house, it seems like the city's taunting her. City workers can go in and out of the housing complex, but she can't. A cold wind is biting at our skin as we stand outside the chain-link fence around the West Calumet housing complex. Earlier that morning, we spent some time at Keisha Daniels' son's school. Now we're with Keisha outside her old house. It's right around the corner, inside the fence. We crane our necks, but it's just out of sight.
1: And all the while, these trucks with the city housing authority logo on their doors keep coming in and out, unlocking the chain link and closing it behind them.
2: And see, they still go in and out of there. I don't know what they're doing, but they come in and out. Um, Is that a, a remediation person? No, that's someone that works for the housing authority. <laughs> That's an actual housing authority truck.
1: It's pretty clear that Keisha finds this ridiculous. She left so much behind, but she can't go in there. And no one is telling her what's going on with her old house and her stuff. Still, we asked the city what they were working on, by the way, but they didn't get back to us.
3: Keisha talking about the stuff she left behind made me think about what it was like to grow up in New Orleans. Every few years, we had to evacuate for hurricanes. You pack a bag, grab your favorite book, and as your family drives away, you think about what might be there when you come back, or if you'll come back at all. I mean, we've had to, like, evacuate for hurricanes growing up in Louisiana before. It almost kind of sounds like that. You know, we just pack yeah. a suitcase and leave and the rest. And pray
2: that you, something is there when you get back. And that's what I did. I, but I can't go back. I can't go back, can't go in there, don't know what they're doing with the stuff that people left in there, you know. We don't know what nothing is. You know, who's to say that they didn't take it and sell it?
3: Our best guess, by the way, they were winterizing the houses or maybe getting them ready to be demolished, which could happen soon.
1: Sometimes it feels like officials think doing things by the book, just getting their jobs done and not going off script. Like, that'll solve all the problems in a place like East Chicago. Those officials can get frustrated when people like Keisha jump to conclusions when they don't have all the answers.
3: You know, we've found no evidence that the city is selling off personal belongings people left behind.
1: But the thing is, it doesn't totally matter what's true about what's actually happening, whether the housing authority truly did everything it could for people like Keisha, or whether the toxins in the ground really gave her arthritis by age 40 and her son ADHD and asthma. What matters is
3: they have those things, and half their worldly possessions are locked inside this fence, and the other half are in their new duplex three blocks away. Keisha lives on disability, and that house within the superfund is the only place she could afford to move her family it still hasn't been tested for lead, despite Keisha and her lawyer's repeated requests.
1: Like Carlton Waterhouse said, the government's best isn't enough in a place like this. Keisha and her whole community are still traumatized and in limbo, especially her kids.
2: I think they just numb. They don't talk about it. They don't have any feelings, I ask. And like I said, Xavier hasn't known any other home but this home.
3: Xavier is her middle schooler who plays basketball at East Chicago Urban Enterprise.
2: He's never been anywhere else. I lived right there first. The White House, on the second house from right there, that's how close I live to the complex. I moved right across the street from my granny, and then I moved in here. <laughs> so that's why I say I haven't, I, don't, I didn't move too far from family. That's my family, so I don't go too far. But if I have to, I will. If I find out it's lead or anything still in that home that I'm in, I'm gonna have to leave. I don't have a choice.
1: She's also worried about what will happen when the city tears down the old complex. That's been really controversial. Residents are worried the city's contractor won't handle demolition safely, that it'll spread lead and arsenic-contaminated dust into the neighborhood. And if they build something new on that land, Keisha says she wouldn't move back unless a lead test was done right in front of her.
3: Another reason People's Trust is shaky is that in the midst of all the soil cleanup stuff with the EPA, they found out their water is contaminated with lead, too. The two problems are unrelated. East Chicago is an old city, and like many old cities in this country, it has lead drinking water service lines. The city treats the water with a chemical to keep the lead from leaching out of the pipes, but the EPA found out, almost by accident, that the treatment wasn't working. So the state stepped in and gave out water filters, but... I don't think those filters gonna last forever. You know, and nobody thought about that. Yeah, you gave me a filter, but um,
2: where are the cartridges? That cost 30 and 40 dollars to replace. What are we going to do then when they need to be replaced? Who is going to pay for that?
1: And I don't think people always understand that for a lot of folks, buying a $30 filter once every few months is not possible. No, it's not.
2: Because I don't want to choose between feeding my kids. I'm already shopping at Aldi, so, you know, it's like, where else can I go? I don't go to the food pantries because you don't have the information to know when they have them and then... You know, sometimes you get a little embarrassed for people to see you at places like that because, you know, it's embarrassing.
1: A lot of people draw comparisons between what's happening in East Chicago and what's happening across the state line in Flint, Michigan. And there are some similarities. Both have a lead problem, obviously. Both are low-income, mostly minority, post-industrial cities people are still drinking bottled water in both places. But there's also an important distinction. The origins of East Chicago's pollution date back a century. The city has that legacy of contamination that's only now coming to light.
3: The other big difference is, generally speaking, the Environmental Protection Agency deals with situations like East Chicago all the time. According to the agency, it's dealt with thousands of Superfund sites over the program's history, in big cities, small towns, all 50 states, Washington, D.C., and most U.S. territories. The EPA does not deal with flints all the time. However unprecedented East Chicago is, and it is unprecedented, the EPA at least has a protocol for cleaning it up.
1: Now, that protocol is very technical, very expensive, and very time-consuming. And it involves a lot of meetings, like one we went to in October 2017 in East Chicago. Good
3: morning, everybody. It's 10 o'clock. We've covered a lot of meetings like this. Some are short, some are very, very long. Some productive, others not so much. This meeting was held in the auditorium of an elementary school in the Superfund that the city shut down a week before school started in 2016. The EPA used it as an office after that.
1: So on this particular Saturday morning, the EPA gave an update on how many yards it had cleaned up that year. Officials said they expected to hit the goals they set at the beginning of the year to clean up all the most contaminated properties.
3: The agency also talked about how it would start cleaning up one other part of the Superfund site, a formerly industrial, now vacant piece of land south of the neighborhood. And that made residents nervous, like Lori Lockhart.
2: So when you say you'll be working with them or monitoring what they do as far as the sampling and going around the site, will you be side by side with them or will you just trust that they're going to give you samples from all the different locations that they've specified?
3: Um, So what we do first is we review a work plan. This second voice is Kathryn Thomas. She works for the EPA. And then um, they will go out and collect those samples and provide that data um, once it's been validated to us. So you really don't know if they take
2: the samples where they say that's where they take them? You just assume that they took them from the the locations you guys specified?
1: Residents ask the EPA questions like this all the time. At the end of the day, a lot of the people who live in this neighborhood, in this Superfund site, have little faith the government can make them healthy, make them whole.
3: And residents definitely don't trust the companies that either put the pollution there or own those liabilities now. Those include DuPont and British Petroleum. The EPA sued them to get money for cleanup. But that's been the extent of their role so far. As far as we know, no representative from one of the potentially responsible parties, that's how the EPA refers to them, has attended a community meeting.
1: But when it comes to the city and state and federal government, it's not that residents flat out don't trust them, but there's definitely a bad history there. Government okayed the industries that left the pollution behind. It okayed building public housing right on top of a former lead smelter. And for a long time, the government wasn't straightforward with residents about any of that. Tara
3: Adams says it's hard for residents to forget all that. Tara is another lifelong East Chicagoan who used to live in the West Calumet housing complex.
2: Residents in West Calumet had no choice. We had to move out, you know, and it's people not just like talking to us. And that's from the beginning. Um, We know that EPA is, I mean, they're doing their job and they're doing it to the best of their ability. And they're supposed to protect us, but we don't know. This is all new to us. And people are not communicating with us. And when we have questions, it appears that we're uh, being shut down. So that's what that is. And then it seems like things are going on in the background that we don't know about. And we've been asked to be informed. And we don't think that we've been informed about everything.
3: That's why we see kids like Antoine and Jalen and Kershawn doing their own lead testing to make sure their families are safe in their own homes from lead. That's why we see women like Keisha sitting on advisory groups and organizing bottled water donations and working with lawyers, even while she searched frantically for a safe place to move her children.
1: And they've achieved a lot with all that work. There have been lawsuits filed and state laws passed, all with the intention of expanding aid to affected residents. But advocating for that stuff has also been a lot to handle while these residents are living the lead crisis every day. People have had to fight through disagreements and put aside differences. The city has a population of 30,000, but it feels a lot smaller.
3: Like when we were talking to Tara, the city's attorney, Carla Morgan, came up to us. She was laughing at the EPA mediator because he kept calling Tara Keisha Daniels' daughter, even though Tara is older than Keisha and they're not related.
1: When we first met Carla, she was struggling. The city doesn't really have a spokesperson, so the mayor gave her the job. That was after he announced West Calumet would be torn down and the story started to attract national media attention.
3: Local officials in East Chicago are not indifferent to this situation. Carla has to toe a certain line, but she's still part of the community.
1: How long have you guys known each other?
2: Forever! Yeah, I don't even know. For, Why? Yeah, for
1: a hundred years. This
2: is like family.
1: This happens at meetings a lot, too. Residents even give the EPA folks hugs. Even though these are hard circumstances, you see someone week after week, month after month. You get to know them. You share things with them.
2: Like, we might not agree on every point, but we do agree that we want the community to be, like, the environmental risk to be eliminated and people to be better off than when we started. And, yeah. We want the best for East Chicago.
3: So who will help answer the question, okay, now what? For the past year, it's been the residents themselves. Community is all they have left, and even that's been gutted by people moving away. Like Tara moved 20 minutes away to another town after she had to leave the housing complex, but she still almost never misses a meeting.
1: But that's not really justice, right? The institutional solutions that Carlton Waterhouse talked about, being very intentional about going above and beyond for a community that's been taken advantage of for generations, that's not happening anytime soon.
3: So that means, at least for now, progress is this more grassroots form of justice, where the institutional process carves out a bigger space for citizen involvement. And there's actually news on that front.
1: In December 2017, the EPA announced the contamination in part of the Superfund site is worse than they originally thought. Instead of $23 million, which they'd already worked out that the companies responsible for the pollution would pay, it looks like the cleanup will cost more like $85 million.
3: If EPA makes a major change to its cleanup plan because of that, residents could ask for a larger say in the new version. A lot of them feel they didn't get that opportunity the first time around.
1: The work of environmental justice has to be done by everybody—obviously Keisha Daniels, Tara Adams, middle school teachers and students, and scores of other residents and lawyers who tirelessly advocate for this city. It also has to be done by local, state, and federal officials—by the court system, by the companies and industries responsible for this contamination. Until all those groups are very intentional about creating justice for East Chicago, a standard cleanup plan will continue to give standard results. Sometimes that's good enough. In East Chicago, it might not be.
0: Annie Ropeek and Nick Jansen reported and produced this episode of Living Downstream. The producers would like to thank their former colleagues at Indiana Public Broadcasting, who continue to report on East Chicago's lead crisis. Music for this episode provided by Blue Dot Sessions. Engineering support from Anthony Garcia. The Living Downstream theme music was written by David Shulman. I'm your host and senior producer, Steve Mencher. Darren Lachelle is the executive producer, and the president and CEO of Northern California Public Media is Nancy Dobbs. Subscribe to Living Downstream wherever you get your podcasts. Visit our website at norcalpublicmedia.org living. And if you see environmental injustice in your community, write to us at living at norcalpublicmedia.org. Living Downstream thanks our sponsors who make this podcast possible. A list is available at norcalpublicmedia.org.